everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love finding out people's stories, people's journeys, and finding out how that journey has impacted them and developed their mindset for performance. Today, we go beyond the surface with Adrian Hazlitt. Adrian's going to share her story, which started in the Pacific Northwest and then brought her across the country to Boston, Massachusetts. Adrienne's life has had a lot of different twists and turns, but she made her way as a professional dancer, so she'll talk about her mindset as a pro dancer and how that has impacted her life. Specifically, she'll get into perfectionism and the effect that perfectionism had on her as a dancer and also in other areas of her life. Adrienne also was a victim in the Boston Marathon bombings where she lost her leg, and she's going to share that horrific day with us and She gets quite emotional talking about it and rehashing it, as you can expect. And so she has an interesting perspective on what it's like to be victimized, have something taken from you, and how to try to restart your life even when certain things have been taken away from you that will never come back again. So we obviously will get into some heavy stuff here, uh, and Adrian will recap what happened to her, but I really want you to focus on the beginning, her, her early life and how she became the person that she is and how her family really impacted her and developed her. And she'll talk about her brothers as well. So I really like Adrian's perspective. I think it's real. I think it's honest. And it's inspirational. So sit back, enjoy our conversation, reflect a bit, think about how this conversation can impact you in your life on a daily basis. And as we go beyond the surface with Adrian, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. So Adrian. Uh, what I'd love to do is just start. Um, we're going to get into um, some highs, some lows in your life uh, as we talk about your journey. But I'd love to know what you were like as a child, uh, where you grew up, what your family was like. I, I think understanding where someone came from and, and how they were developed as a, a child is, is, impacts who they are today as a human being. So if you could just shed some light on the type of kid you were, the family dynamic, all that good stuff. Yeah. Oh, I love doing that. And my mom's in town right now. So it just, it feels even better to not have her be all the way across the country. So I grew up right outside of Seattle, Washington in a little town called Issaquah that when I was growing up had one stoplight and, uh, and then the airfield for prop trick planes to perform. Um, and it was a beautiful way to grow up. My parents, uh, met at the phone company, which was Pacific Northwest Bell, uh, now AT&T and uh, my dad was in Vietnam prior to meeting my mom and with the, he went to the United States Naval Academy and uh, they met at the phone company and then my dad retired uh, shortly after I was born uh, took an early retirement pension and uh, my mom fulfilled a dream of hers to open up a children's bookstore so I grew up, my brother two older brothers, they're 40 I'm um, almost 37 and uh, they we grew up in the pages of this bookstore so it was like a fairy tale we didn't have cable TV we didn't even have those little tinfoil antennas uh, we just had one VHS tape that played Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire over and over again on loop and that tape lasted that VHS lasted longer than like a cell phone battery would last it lasted from the moment I can't remember like through 18 and it was incredible. And so I watched Ginger Rogers do everything Fred Astaire did backwards and in high heels. And 
it was magical. And I threw my fists on the table when I was five years old with my bright red hair and my Coke bottle glasses that I wanted to be Ginger Rogers when I grew up. And my parents were like, it's a good thing we didn't have cable. So, uh, I, you go meet- forward, can you just shed some yeah. more light on dad? So, uh, yeah, I hear Vietnam, I hear military, I hear Naval mm-hmm. Academy. I'm based in Washington, DC. So I know yeah. how prestigious the Naval Academy is. Um, Was he a military guy? What was he like from a personality standpoint, from a value standpoint? I think uh, value-wise, you would definitely know he was from the Naval Academy. And I say this with the utmost compliment from a um, personality standpoint. You would not know unless he told you he was from the Naval Academy. Uh, He grew up small town and... uh, ended up with my mom's bookstore being a stay-at-home dad after having this big, long career. Loved every single second for it, said every day he was born for it, Um, made our lunches, drove us to school. He has the patience and the honesty of a saint, and he is an incredible human being. I'm a daddy's girl. Uh, My parents are still together, Um, but it's no joke that I'm a daddy's girl. Uh, Everybody knows it. He is... An incredible human with great values and very steadfast, smooth. Um, one in the family when my mom and I are like all over the place with personalities and decisions and and dreams, and he just makes sure that he keeps us steadfast and that our dreams come true. So he's more uh, sort of even keel, emotionally solid. I, I would be remiss to not. Ask, did you guys talk about Vietnam? I mean, that's such a central. Yeah. Uh, Event in our culture and our history. What what were some of the things you learned about him going off to war? Probably seeing some things that aren't too glamorous. Like what was that discussion? What were those discussions like? You know, I asked him throughout my growing up. It was really it was really um, an open discussion. My parents are open books when it comes to talking about anything at any time. We'd be driving somewhere, and I would be thinking about it, bring it up, and he would never say, "Oh, let's talk about that later." Um, both my mom and him. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I remember at the early ages just being like, what was that like? And he would say, you know, I'm really lucky that I didn't see things that were too awful. He was an officer, um, in the Naval Academy or in Vietnam and on a aircraft carrier. And so he saw a lot of stuff, but it wasn't frontline stuff. Um, on the ground. So he helped rescue bodies that would go down from planes, which was incredibly difficult. And he did talk about it. He talked about how he lost his best friend and how uh, his best friend always dreamt about having a wife and kids. And my dad got to go fulfill that dream and he didn't. And when we went to DC as kids, we found him on the Vietnam Memorial and did the marking of the chalk and crayon and of his name. And I vividly remember my father tearing up and, uh, he's very open emotionally and that allowed all of us to be open emotionally and supported the arts, which usually don't go hand in hand with military backgrounds. It's There's something interesting right there that I just want to pull on a little bit, which is look, people come back from war and have post-traumatic stress disorders, right? Like we are all very familiar with that. And I'm sure we're going to get more into your story. Um, and being aware of, how, yeah, I mean, we're going to connect those dots a little bit later, but there, it sounds like for him, he also said, I lost my best friend. He wanted to have a wife and a family. Um, 
maybe I have an obligation or a responsibility or if I'm putting words into his mouth, but like I better go live my life and live my dreams. Whereas maybe other people would have survivor's guilt. Uh, I know that's another big thing. Um, yeah. I was like, that wasn't really his thing. His thing is no, you better go live a fulfilling life and go. Yeah. His thing was more, I want to go live a fulfilling life. It wasn't, it wasn't a survivor's guilt that, that I picked up on and, you know, we'll connect these dots later, but it's, we talked about that with, with me, um, and, and with him later, um, on down the road. And, uh, and so that wasn't, that wasn't his, uh, his deal. He just felt like living the fulfilled life and he retired from, uh, the Navy and said he didn't think he would meet the woman of his dreams, um, there. And he met my uh, mom, his wife, uh, just two weeks later. So, uh, it, it goes to show that he, he wanted that he wanted the picket fence and the family and the grandkids, which he has not from me, but my brothers have a quadrillion children. And so, uh, so he got all of that and, and for babies and, for me, your, your pets. <laughs> yeah. And, um, are they both from Washington state originally or, so my father is originally from Yakima and my mother is originally from Oregon, from Salem, Oregon. So Pacific Northwest so people. Pacific Northwest people and still there, hence the mom visit. Um, everyone's still there. Yes. And then I, I want to go into mom a little bit. So mom yeah. it sounds like is a dreamer, had this vision of, you know, children bookstore. And it sounds like that also was a big part of your upbringing, spending time there as a family, having a family business um, and sort of the world revolving around there. So just explain mom a little bit more to me from a values and personality standpoint. Yeah. You know, both my parents are, um, are, have very strong values and uh, have, very, um, strong personalities in, in a good way. They're incredibly united front. Um, there was never, ever a, Oh, well dad said, no, I'll go to mom. There was, that was not, that was not an option. I tried that like twice and it was, <laughs> it didn't go well. And that was it. Um, so it was, uh, it was very much a, um, a united front. My mom is, is a dreamer, as you said, and really believed in children's ed- education and hence the reason why we didn't have cable TV, um, or any TV. Uh, and we, she believed in kids education. She saw the books that were out there. She didn't think they were the best. And so she wanted desperately to, you know, find a place where she could have provide education for kids. And it was amazing to watch her, grow into being the head of the American Booksellers Association and have all these artists and um, musicians and illustrators and writers come through the house and bands touring all the time and staying at our house and playing acoustic guitar and drums and all of this stuff. Uh, And my mom saying, you know, oh, well, they're playing downtown Seattle at, you know, the Moore Theater. We're all going to go. And we'd be up way past our bedtime listening to this killer band play. And they sold records. And um, we hold, heard stories of, you know, poets spitting poetry at the dinner table and, you know, drumming on all this. It was just it was just a magical childhood. And she just wanted us to meet as many people as we could and live our lives. She wanted independent children to pursue their dreams. That was her mission in life. 
So the and her gateway was was through the bookstore and, and being an example of, look, you can do this. You can follow your dreams and do this. So you've got some of the arts coming out there, but you also have um, an appreciation for achieving greatness. Maybe that's too large of a word, but going and creating something, innovating, doing something. So I, I want to find out about your brothers. It sounds like, are they twins? Because I think you said they're 40. They twins. They're twins. Yes. And so they're 40. I'll say that loud. They're 40. Ha ha. Just kidding. <laughs> so they're 40. And what are they doing? What was it like also yeah. being sort of like, there's an image in my head of like two boys that are older brothers. It sounds like you're like three years younger than them. So you're the mm-hmm. youngest, but you're also the youngest of two brothers and twins. Uh, well, you'll give me more. It's like having two extra dads. They would show up on dates all the time. Yeah, like, You'd be like, really? like, why? I don't stand a chance now. He just ran the other direction. Like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, it's um, one thing to have like, one older brother, but it's another to have two that are the same age that I'm sure, like, they had a special dynamic and a special relationship. And then here, here goes little Adrian, like, right behind us, and there's just so many different things, directions that that could go in in my head. So give us some more color on that. Yeah, I, you know, they're amazing and incredible humans. And I, I love, we're a very close family, always have been. And my brothers and I, we, we would never fight. Like we would never wrestle. We'd never hit. We'd never, we barely disagreed. Um, uh, and so it was really interesting because we would be walking through the grocery store and holding hands. I'd be between them, of course, and we'd be holding hands and, and, Parents would stop my parents, either my mom or my dad or both of them, and be like, how, how did you get them to do that? Like, how does that work? And they're like, I, I don't know, but I'm not going to ask. Um, we just were really close. There are pictures of me as a little infant and them holding onto each hand and sucking their thumbs laying next to me. Um, it was really beautiful. They just, they've just always looked out for me. And I didn't know any difference. So now that I look back and see other siblings um, you know, clashing in it. That happened a little bit when I was little with friends and stuff. You see siblings clash all the time. And I'm just like, why do that? Like, you're so, I'm so lucky to have those guys in my life. And they're very, they're very much the same, but very different. Also, um, when I was growing up, they're the exact same, um, in dress, personality, everything, uh, as they grew older and got married, um, obviously and had kids dynamics change. Uh, and they're kind of growing into their own. David is a farmer in Silicon Valley. Um, he has chickens and goats in the center of Silicon Valley and wears overalls and has a giant beard as a high school arts teacher. Time out, time uh, out, time out. You, when you said farmer, my mind did not go to Silicon Valley. Right, exactly. Amazing. So how did he get, so just I'll be curious, how did, how did that come? How did he decide to do that there? Like what, what's, give me the quick bullet point back. That's where, that's where, uh, the teaching jobs were prevalent um, to put the Cliff Notes version. That's where the teaching jobs were prevalent. So he and his wife uh, are, um, he's a teacher. She's, she is raising and growing children, um, which is an even harder job. Um, And so they also are world travelers. She grew up in Cape Town, South Africa and, he studied in Inner Mongolia and in the depths of Alaska where people didn't even speak um, English and is more of a tribe. And um, 
and he's taught all over the world. And so they're very, very worldly and love to travel. We all love to travel. We grew up traveling. I was going to say, was adventure a part of your childhood? Adventure is a huge part of our childhood, um, whether it was through the pages of a book or traveling. Um, And so they traveled all the time and found out, you know, how people are living all over the world. And they didn't feel the need to live in the Silicon Valley life just because they were living there. Uh, And so their kids wake up and start, you know, gathering eggs and making the bread. And it's not a... um, it is not a, you know, demanding thing. That's just what they do. And obviously they don't have television because why we grew up not needing, I still don't have one. You can see in the background. Um, and, uh, they just, that's what they do. They play outside. They take their bikes everywhere. They reduce their carbon footprint. Um, they live off the land and, uh, and you know, they drive it, but only if they have to, um, and they lead a minimalist life, and they're the happiest people. Some of the happiest people I know. The, uh, and my- the, before you get to the other brother, who I, I'm, I'm wait, I'm, I'm curious what he does. But um, I had somebody on this podcast before who grew up in a rural area and grew up on a farm, and he just talked about the independence and the discipline that it taught him. Uh, that we actually yeah. are conscientious of what we're eating, and there's. Um, yeah. you feel like you actually yeah. have earned it and it's just sort of what they did like and he it really taught him discipline work ethic and independence which is a word that you've said that your parents instilled in you guys is having the independence yes. to go create and go innovate or whatever it might be and it's fascinating yeah. that he's doing that in an area of the country that is the most innovative in the world um, and that he's doing it in a completely different way but he's still being innovative and he's still uh, creating and uh, being conscientious and curious and um so many cool traits that fit there yeah fit differently i just think that's fascinating yeah absolutely yeah absolutely you 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 worded it beautifully it's exactly uh right on the nose and and he he has um you know my dad's picket fence is an actual picket fence and david my brother's picket fence is um recycled wood that is not nailed together because nails have rust and rust is bad for the environment and so it's like put together in this very, you know, very researched methodical way that they built fences back in the day. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's very innovative in a very innovative place, as you said, uh, but in their own way, and it does teach discipline for the children. And, and my nieces and nephews are so happy and love what they do and, you know, name their chickens and goats and all that stuff and, and love art and love love to read. I mean, there's, their reading level is so far beyond any other kid their age tenfold. Um, and then my other brother, Tim, who lives, uh, near Seattle on Whidbey Island, uh, he lives on acreages of land and, uh, started out as a landscape architect, uh, and then, uh, is now a very successful oil painter. So, um, so he is, he has, art shows all the time and uh, has his stuff up all over Whidbey Island in banks and coffee shops and restaurants and all of that and sells it um, online as well. So, uh, and then his wife is um, raising children again, super hard job. Um, especially they each, uh, they each have one has three, one has four kids and um, they are very busy uh, and succeeding. So I'm really proud of them. Proud to be their sister. Very cool. But like the way I would sum up, if we're going to get to your story. Um, but 
like they're they're independent, they're conscientious, they're disciplined, they're mm-hmm. hardworking, uh, and, they're, and they're artistic. Um, and I think those are those sound like qualities to give your parents a lot of credit that they instilled Absolutely. they instilled in you. But it's it's cool to hear that sort of take place. I'm one of three as well. Um, Thanks. We fought like crazy, so we are that 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 picture. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just it was just interesting that we that we didn't. I look back at it now and I'm like, we didn't have the reason to, but I don't know why we didn't. Like my parents weren't like, if you do this, you're gonna get. You know, it wasn't a discipline thing. It was. I don't know. We just did. I also am one of three boys, and I think there's something there's something about three boys that is different than like two boys and one girl, or two girls and a boy, or even three yeah. girls. I think three girls brings its own challenges. But um, yeah. for me, like there, and, and I, I was the middle child, and I have a Napoleon complex, or had a Napoleon complex, or still working on my Napoleon complex. Right. But there was there was interesting dynamics. But we're all best friends now, and it is true. Our parents. That's I can constantly remember them just saying, "You guys are going to be best friends," and we looked at them like they were crazy. Um, but having right. having siblings that have shared values is a pretty cool thing. So I want to get back to your story. So. You're you're growing up sort of in the arts. Uh, you're you I don't want to say role models, but the people that you loved or uh, loved watching are in the arts and in. Yeah. Just walk me through dance. Did dance start for you uh, at a young age? Performing theater, like where did that all come in? Yeah, it started at a young age, and um, and we were very encouraged with arts uh, as kids, and and my parents loved it, um, and you know, hanging out at the bookstore and having people stay with us, the circle that we were around was just very, it was a lot of freedom and, and, and a lot of artistic uh, entities. And so, um, it wasn't about the dollar. It was about, you know, the love of your life being, finding what you love to do. And then the money and everything can come with it. If you, if you're passionate about it, you're work hard at it. Um, instead of the other way around, uh, and so I saw, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I keep saying the words Fred Astaire. My service dog is in the other room whose name is Fred Astaire. Oh, my gosh. And so it's being like, <laughs> so if you see me looking, that's why. Um, of course, his name is Fred Astaire. Um, and uh, so I grew up wanting to be a dancer and went into dance classes early. I did theater. I did performances um, all through school. And uh, an audition, an audition, audition to go pro. I was a professional belly dancer for three and a half years. Uh, I did jazz and hip hop and contemporary. I didn't do ballet, which is weird because everybody does. But for whatever reason, I didn't do it. And I think it was too strict. I like the freedom of of the expression, and ballet is very regimented, um, unlike ballroom and hip hop and that sort of thing. Um, and I was more attracted to the, to the music of everything else than the music of ballet. Uh, so, yeah, I just danced and performed a lot uh, in musicals and, and school and, and all of that. And then after high school, I didn't think that, you know, calculus could help me become the next Ginger Rogers. So I didn't go. And I'm not anti-college, but I've been really successful not going. So I think it should be a choice. I don't think anyone should ever be forced did your brothers both go to college? We did. They did. They went to a private uh, college, and uh, they loved it, and it was really good for them. Uh, and my parents were supportive of both. 
Yeah. And so they were supportive of you not going that route and pursuing dance. Is that what that yep. was? Yeah, they wanted to make sure I had backup, so I worked in retail and opened up my own personal styling business uh, and uh, styled a bunch of um, professional athletes and their wives and such around the Seattle area. And then I uh, went back into retail after I didn't like the scene of going over to somebody's house who was fulfilling that you know void in their life with material objects that was not my scene. That's not how I was raised. Uh, so sorry, real quick. I, was there was there a yeah. crossroads in your life where you did appreciate the material stuff and you liked of being course. around that the, the fame and uh, those people? And yeah, can you just unpack yeah. that? A little yeah, bit? It, it was it was that the money was great for my age when everybody else is going into mass amounts of debt and I have the opposite of income that amount in income. Um, you know, at 18 and 19 and 20, it's pretty great to be able to like run down to Cabo and Vegas and stuff every weekend, you know, who doesn't want to. Um, and I love that, but like, I loved fashion for the art. So a lot of people think, you know, Oh, that t-shirt from Alexander McQueen or, um, you know, who, you know, Chanel or whoever is, just a, a t-shirt but if you look at the stitching and you look at the way it's made in the fit it's artistic it, to me it's the, it's an art piece and some people will pay that much for you know paint on a canvas and some people will pay that much for what's parked in their driveway most of the day or at their work most of the day which seems like a complete waste to me um but I get that that's somebody else's art so it's for me the art was clothing and I looked at it in the way that an artist looks at it where, you know, the woman's body is the most beautiful thing on the planet. I'm straight, but I can still say that because it is. And, uh, and it's, um, people have been trying to dress it because we're supposed to wear clothes. People have been trying to dress it and make it look just as beautiful, um, with clothes on since the moment of time. So, uh, I looked at it as an expression from all these gorgeous couture artists. So you have, uh, so I, that part of it, you had that depth to your motivation to be yeah. it, there was that depth to it, which is, yeah. cause I'm sure there are a lot of people that were in your space that didn't have that depth to it. And maybe Definitely. that caused a frustration for you or it was, it was really frustrating is I would say, you know, Oh, you know, look at this piece, look at the intricate details of this and the fabrics they used are from, you know, ancient Rome and, 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 you know, all of these different places and, it's inspired by, you know, Queen Mary's book, you know, all these different things and give them the full history. And they would look at me like I was a nerd because I was, and, and I would, uh, and they would say, you know, I, I don't care. I just saw the celebrity wearing it last week. So I have to have it. I'm just like, so it didn't okay. align. It didn't align with your value system, with your purpose. Uh, yeah. so the passion might've still been there for them, oh, but it wasn't the purpose that you had. So the purpose was missing. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about being a professional dancer. And so that's my world, which is like, what is your mindset to prepare and what is your mindset to perform? Uh, can you walk yeah. me through sort of what your mentality was when you were practicing, when you were training? I mean, becoming a professional dancer, we're, we're not going to gloss over that. Like that's not a big deal. Um, there's training, there is, uh, all yeah. kinds of work that went into that. So can you just walk us through your mindset when you were preparing to perform? But also I want to know Absolutely. what it was like when you're on stage, the light is on you and it's go time. Can you paint, 
Give us some more color on that. Yeah, it's go time, and it's go time in, like, a fringed bikini with, like, fringe on it, right? Like, that's, that's what, <laughs> it seems like the polar opposite of what I was doing. So I can tell you that we'll connect those dots later, but prior to everything that went down, um, I was obsessive. I was a recover. I am a recovering perfectionist at the time of, of pursuing my dance career um, and getting ready to go out on stage and that mental prep and all of that that we're talking about. Uh, I was a perfectionist and I would be obsessing about my moves. I would be obsessing about my dress. I'd be obsessing to make sure that I had a sponsor. Um, uh, as dancers think it's really cute that athletes have off seasons. We don't, we think it's cute that they have backups. We think it's cute that they get paid the salaries they do. We don't have off seasons. We're the only ones who know our routine. We take a cortisone shot if we land on our head and keep going. Um, we just think it's really cute that Brady has an off season. I love him. I met the guy. I can say that, but it's, it's funny how like much praise they get. We're professional athletes. We don't, we don't have a day off. Um, and, uh, so the mental prep for us as, and for me as a dancer is, is a lot of stress, unhealthy stress. Uh, I look back at it now, um, a lot of unhealthy stress, a lot of unhealthy environments of people trying to be their best. They're, it's basically like an adult beauty pageant without any maturity added on because you're an adult. Um, and the mental prep that I used, um, I finally got to the point where, you know, women would be so catty and guys too, where they would say, you know, Oh, I used to have that coach, but I don't anymore. Or, Oh, I, I tried on that dress, but I don't wear that. Or I used to be sponsored by that company, but I don't do that. And just trying to get into your head, you know, to mess up your game before you get out there. And I got to the point where I put my headphones in and looked down, um, and not talk to anyone until I was out in, at all or until I was done performing. And that was mostly as a self-protection, uh, just to get my head in the game and be ready to perform. Um, and yeah, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of, of rejection. Um, you have to learn how to grow thick skin and still be passionate about your craft. Um, but you know, you perform and you compete and you lose and you lose and you lose and you learn and uh, you get better coaches and you lose and you learn and, and then you make semifinals and you celebrate a little and then you go to finals and you learn and it's just an ongoing process and then I made it to third in the world, um, which is insane. Uh, but it takes a lot of discipline. You know, a day off is working eight hours instead of 14 so, Adrian, I want to bring up a concept to you and get your thoughts on it. So you said I'm a recovering perfectionist, which to yeah. me uh, suggests that you think perfectionism is not something you want to be. Um, and Yeah, I mean, yes, that's true. I don't want to be that. And here's what my theory is. Um, perfectionism, when we're preparing, is almost necessary. Um, yeah. So, like Tom Brady, let's just use him as a gym. He has yeah. to be perfect when he's watching film, look over every nuance and understand every attention to detail to make sure that things are perfect. The issue with perfectionism is not in the preparation. The issue with perfectionism is when you get on stage and you're trying to be perfect. Um, yes. And so to toggle, to understand like the idea that I can be try to be perfectionist when I'm preparing – 
But the moment I step on stage, I need to be adaptable. I need to be malleable. Um, and I think that's a big challenge for athletes or really anyone that's a performer because, look, perfectionism is probably what got you to third in the world. Like, if you didn't yeah. have that, if you were just like, oh, whatever, I'll make a mistake. Oh, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm just going to keep making mistakes. If you didn't have the discipline to be like, no, it's going to be right and I'm going to make sure that it's right and I need to be somewhat neurotic in what I'm wearing and what I'm eating and what I'm doing. And like every elite performer has that element of neuroticism. Now I want to caution yep. people because neuroticism is a psychological disorder that somebody that can, can have that can paralyze them. So it's not right. all encompassing, right. but the idea of perfectionism when I'm preparing is a, you have to be able to tote that line. If you want to become something elite in the world at something, um, the issue that people run into is when they bring that into the performance and they don't enjoy the performance and they're not where their feet are and being in that present place in the performance because they're worried about making a mistake. And fear, fear of failure is the same thing. Like Fear of failure is massively important when we're preparing, but if we bring that on the stage and we're not fearless, we're going to crumble and we're going to fall apart. But I like to separate the preparation mindset from the performance mindset. So um, – like humility, a great tool for us to have as human beings when we're preparing. But I need to be confident. When you get on stage, you need to have swag. Like if, uh, you're, if you're still humble, uh, you're you're gonna be out for for some you know a, a, a tough go because you're right. That person that's your competitor that is looking at you and saying, "Oh, I used to have that coach. I used to have those shoes. I used to have that skirt. Whatever it is." They're going to yeah. eat you alive because they're going to be a little narcissistic when they step on that stage. And then the other thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on is I've talked to actors and musicians about this is um, when they get on stage, it can't look rehearsed. It has to look like it's the first time they've ever done those moves as I shimmy and do my little dance move. Um, and when you look at your partner, it has to be like real. It can't be like this is the way I'm supposed to look at you and look away. Yeah. yeah. So give me some insight into that idea and how you prepare yourself to perform and also this notion of hey maybe the perfectionism did help me but when it got into my performance that's when it crippled me and 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 just yeah give us a little more insight into that yeah it crippled me in my performance my performances I mean I got to third in the world but I didn't what I didn't like is I didn't celebrate that because it wasn't number one mm. and that's what I don't like about perfectionism and and I don't like that I'm, I was always striving for something better. And I do think there needs to be an element of that. There does need to be, you know, you do need to be neurotic about it, as, as you stated. And, and, but I also think I'm a huge fan of self-celebration. Um, and <clears throat> you have to be able to self-celebrate and to be able to say, yeah, I worked, I worked my ass off for this. And, and I, stayed up extra and I paid extra for that coach. And I rehearsed on days when my friends were going out boating and I, you know, passed up on a new, you know, yacht, yacht club membership because I, um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to spend my weekends in the studio and, you know, there has to be that, but you also can't, you can't bring that to the floor. So I, I do understand that the separation between performance and and preparation, I, I brought it all the way through to everything. So for me, it was debilitating. Um, and while I did succeed, I didn't succeed well. If that makes sense. Um, you enjoy it. You didn't, there was I didn't no, enjoy it. Right? no, I didn't. 
And I surrounded myself with perfectionists. I got back and my, uh, my boss, um, said, Oh, three. Well, hopefully next time you'll be better. Like that's awful. And, and so, you know, I, I surrounded myself with people like that. I don't want to be surrounded with, by people like that. And my first competition back after losing my leg, I went out just to, just to hit the floor again. And I had no idea what I was going to place or even if I was going to place. And I didn't tell people that I was going to go. So I'd have some like advantage or whatever. Um, and I won. And I, I really, to this day, believe that I won because I, I prepared like crazy. And then when I got out there, I was like, if I follow my face, I follow my face, but I'm going to have a darn good time because I worked my ass off to get here. Beautiful. And, and my partner was in the bathroom when they were announcing winners because he was had so much faith in me. So he's not my partner anymore, but, um, and I was, I was like, um, I'll go up there by myself then. It's fine. I earned it. it. Um, like, like, fuck it. Right. Like, let's just fucking do it. just do it. And I did it and I won and I was like, that's awesome. And so it was, it was great. And I did lifts and tricks and stuff that I would never have done before because I would have been scared about accidents and, um, injury. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like when you're fearless in performing, that's a good thing. But when you're fearful in performing, that's, that's when you, that's when you fail. Beautiful. I, and I agree with that so much. And I think that message is so valuable, especially to pro athletes and college mm-hmm. athletes and elite performers or even people on Wall Street who are like, you know, in the trenches and like they're yeah. competing. It, it doesn't really matter wherever you're a performer. And, and when you can mix a little fear of failure when you're preparing, but understand, all right, that I'm using that to make sure I'm at my best. But when I step onto the stage, I'm fearless. Man, that and what you said earlier is I knew that I'd put the work in. I knew that I had done all that stuff. So now it's let's just let it out. You need to have that toggle that toggling of of both of them. Because I find when you you miss one of them, when you don't have any fear of failure when you're preparing, you're not gonna take care of the little things that help you get better and help you approve. So it's healthy. But the issue is people then go so deep into that rabbit hole, like you said, that perfectionism. it, It permeates everything you do because I think a part of that is because we prepare so much more than we perform. So I'd imagine if you're a dancer, you're spending so much time in the studio and so little time on stage. So that becomes habitual for you. And that's just what we bring to the stage. Yeah. That's what we do when we dance and you don't separate. Right. That's all the time. Right. And so I, I was recently in Nevada um, and I was performing and they hired for a company and they were, they hired a professional dancer that I'd never met before, but you're both professionals. I've been in this situation many times and we only, uh, we only had two hours the day before to come up with song choreography and dance. And then the next day, the next morning we were on stage without rehearsal and we nailed it. And it was because we put so much time into those two hours and we're just like, well, it is what it is. Like we're, we're pros. We're just going to nail it. And the only way they know you messed up is if you go, Oh, you know, and they don't know your choreography. So like, you know, it's, you don't want to come into it with it. I don't care what happens attitude, but you have to, you have to be able to enjoy the process and it can, it can make you into a place, into a person that is falling into a place where you're just, you're neurotic about everything. And 
and I don't want to be that way. I don't want that to carry into my life. Well, and you built a, a level of competence that allows you to only have two hours of work really smart and be smart in how you're working. And now we're going to use those two hours. And then I've got a competence level that can allow me to still perform. And um, I think when you understand that you're competent, then the feelings of doubt or the thoughts of uh, criticism, uh, they're still there, but they're just quieter. The, the volumes turn. Yeah, not much time for them, right? You don't have as much time. And in fact, the partner that I was dancing with, who I'm sure will be watching us, so. <laughs> But um, he would, I found, I can say this because I told him it, um, I found over phone calls that he was, he was really, really nervous to only have these two hours. And I scheduled the two hours. I had the rest of the day free. Um, and I scheduled the two hours knowing that he would like beat this thing with a stick if we had eight hours to, and it wouldn't be fun. So I was like, we're doing this in two hours. I know we can. I want to prove to him that he can. And I did afterward. He was like, that went awesome. And I was like, yeah, I said, did you have fun? He was like, I had a blast. And I was like, good. I did too. I'm curious what you think of the word grind because we hear the word grind everywhere. Uh, like yeah. hip hop, the rappers talk about getting their grind on. Uh, we hear athletes talk about grinding. We hear, uh, lawyers talking about yeah. grinding hours. I'm just curious what you think of the word grind. I, I think it's fine. Um, I, I grind. Like if I'm, if I'm, you know, on big, I stretch three times a day full. Yeah. I don't do yoga. I do. I don't find it difficult enough. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I can't get in the ohm stage. I'm like blasting tune. So I do it. Um, but I, I can't do a handstand though. So props to everyone who can. Um, and I stretch three times a day. I find if I skip it, then I'm grinding to like, my body feels it. I'm grinding to, to get it done. If I don't, you know, stretch and do exercises to build my back muscles, then I'm grinding to get that back. Um, and so, and I grind in the studio to, to make sure that I'm getting what I need to get done. I grinded in those two hours to make sure that I was staying on point. We're staying focused and not worrying about what we're not doing, but worrying about what we are doing. And, uh, and, you know, shooting video and looking at video again and then looking at it again and then redoing it and looking at the video again. And, um, so we can see what the audience sees from all sides and, uh, not just what we see in the mirror in front of us. And, and that, you know, that helps the grinding helps. Take me to, uh, so you, you work as a fashion, uh, consultant. I'm probably saying it wrong, but no, it's okay. I dropped the fashion when I went pro with ballroom. So it, it, yeah, I was doing it to fund my addiction for ballroom and addiction for dance. And then as soon as I was hired pro, I, I left. So I think you said three and a half years of doing pro, like really competing at that, that high level. Is that right? Or did I miss you? I, I did, uh, let's see. I did seven, is it seven? No, 10 and a half years. Wow. Competing. So you're, you're in it, you're traveling. Is it all over the world, all over the country? It's just constantly moving. All over the country, now all over the world. Beautiful. So yeah. you're getting that adventure in, uh, you know, you're still traveling yeah. and, and doing that adventure. Awesome. Still traveling, still having an impact on people, still, you know, wanting to, you know, I get to teach when I, I don't teach on a regular basis. I'm not home 
long enough to make somebody great. Um, because you know, it's like taking a lesson to drive a car. If you only did it once a month, you'd be a terrible driver. Um, so I can't, I can't teach in that level, but I teach dance clinics for like four hours in different cities that I visit for amputees and people with mobility issues, which is really rewarding. Awesome. So take me, you're in the Pacific Northwest. What brings you to Boston? How do you end up in Boston? And what's, what's that story? It's pretty obvious. I don't have that Boston accent, right? Um, I, uh, was with a studio and my dance teacher, um, who, who owned the studio, uh, I was a teacher, but she owned the studio and she was originally from Boston. And she said, in order to be great, you have to move there. Like that's where the best coaches are. That's where it's most competitive. That's where, you know, you're going to find the best partner. They're not here. And I said, okay, how do I get in? And she said, well, you know, I used to work there and I was pretty high up there and she's, uh, not, not very humble, but she's earned it. Um, and, and she's 83 at the time. She's no longer with us now. Um, and she said, you have to go. I'll make a call. That was on Wednesday. She made the call on Friday and I packed my bags on Monday. Wow. Yeah. Are you- I had a new, I had a new partner like a month later and started grinding for worlds. Are you impulsive? Yes. Can you tell? <laughs> My father is very steadfast. That's why I'm a daddy's girl. Cause I think he's like, I need to watch over her. Like, if, you're, if you think something makes sense, you're just going to go, you, you're, you trust your gut. And yeah, I put a lot of fun into it. I'm not like stupid impulsive. I mean, I knew one person in Boston, <laughs> but I knew that the dance community is small, even though it's spread out all over the, the entire world. It's small. So, I, and I grew up coming to Boston a lot. But you're fearless for being great at something. That that part doesn't scare you. Where maybe others would say, yeah. "No, I'm going to play it safe. I'm okay with being okay." You're not okay with just being. Yeah. No, I don't do well with that. I just broke up with a guy last night because he just kept talking this big game about how he's going to leave the job he hated, and it, I waited six months, and I was like, I can't handle that. You're a person of action. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, can't handle that. So you move to Boston, and I'm assuming it becomes even more intense. You're surrounded by the best dancers in the world. You're surrounded by the best coaches in the world. Um, That's where perfectionism really started to show itself. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say that people in Seattle and and other places, I studied in San Antonio, Texas, to learn uh, country and Latin also for a small stint there um, because I wanted to be immersed in the culture where it was, not in Boston's version or Seattle's version. and there's nothing that'll teach you better than a good country bar and some great dancers. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I strive for being fearless in my pursuit of being successful. Um, and, and I, I'm also not, we're raised to not be fearless to make big moves in our lives to pursue our dreams. So my parents love to travel. Hence the reason my mom's here. Um, they love to travel. I love to travel. So, we get to see each other all the time. I miss my nieces and nephews all the time. We have Skype dance parties, which is really fun. Um, with tutus and everything, um, including me. Uh, and it's just a, it's just a blast, but I miss family a lot, but it made sense to my family for me to move. The word successful, you said I'm fearless toward, I want to be fearless towards being successful. How do you define success? being happy at what you do, laying your head in the pillow at the end of the night, uh, being happy with what you do. And also knowing that you have an impact on others. Um, we, 
I, I didn't mention this before, um, but we were also raised to do Habitat for Humanity during the summer, so we wouldn't be wasting our summers just sitting by the beach or sitting at friends' houses being bored um, and experiencing the world. So, like, at 14, my parents dropped me off at the airport and I went to Tijuana with a bunch of people I didn't know. Um, and uh, and we built houses, and I went to Alaska and built houses and all over, you know, all over the globe. And, um, and so... I wasn't fearless about hopping on a plane and just going and doing something. I've been doing that for a very long time. So, so my idea of success is impacting others in a positive way. When you travel the globe and see, I recently went to Ecuador and Nepal, and, and you, you see people being happy without having a ton of stuff, a ton of these material possessions, they don't have TVs. That's fine. I love going to schools and telling people I don't have a TV and I didn't get my first computer until 2013. I love that. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing. I can set up Skype. Um, and it's, it, it, I love that because I don't consider myself any less intelligent. I just am busy pursuing other things. And my coaches are always in my ear saying, you know, if you have time to sit and watch TV, you have time to be practicing. So another reason why so tv sort of being a distraction for a lot of people and maybe taking away from the conscientiousness or the purpose or um the intention that you want to have makes sense yeah and growing up we didn't have it my parents were like this you're going to get lost in it and then hearing coaches that that are going to shape my dream come true right they're telling me it's bad too so of course i'm not going to watch i have my friends dbr a couple of shows but um <laughs> we don't we don't need to get into no my, my favorite shows we'll do that maybe i'll give you a link <laughs> for 20 year plan for you or maybe when you're like yeah. flying or something you can get We're right when my, feet, when my feet finally give up and i can't move and i've danced my body out and all of that then i'll catch up on all those shows people told me about yeah We'll tell you about Breaking Bad and Friday Night Lights and all these other good shows. Right. Um, yeah, I keep hearing about all those. <laughs> uh, they're great. They're, they're awesome. But uh, take me to Boston Marathon. Take me to that experience um, and just shed some light on what that was like to go through it. And, you know, I'm, I'm most interested in sort of the after. Um, but yeah. take me to the before and sort of what brought you there and just tell that story. I'm sure you've told it a million times, but... Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I, so I was, uh, at the, I was in Boston and, you know, studying and I just won third place in worlds, um, a few months prior. And I was in, um, one worlds in August and it was in, oh, so I guess it was a little over. No, sorry. It was right before. Excuse me ignore that. Um, it was right before and I was in Boston and I decided to take a full day off, which for professional athletes, as you know, is a big deal. We don't take days off. And I decided to take that day off. Um, I didn't have an injury or anything like that. I just decided to, the whole city of Boston takes Patriots day off. It's always the third Monday in April. And it's when the Boston marathon is run the oldest running marathon in, in the country. And, um, and in the world, I believe. And I didn't understand running at all as it was, am a ballroom dancer. I like ostrich feathers, bronzing and nails and makeup. And, uh, I balanced that with hiking and all of that, but not running. I didn't understand the idea of running 26.2 miles and then fainting at the end for a free banana and a medal. I just didn't get it. I'm like, I get trophies and, and roses. Like, I just don't get it. And 
So I had a day off and of course I was in heels because dancers never don't wear heels to train your feet. Um, side note, the only reason why women have trouble wearing heels is because they also wear flats. <laughs> you can train your body to do anything. Um, and, uh, and so I had a day off and I went down to go shopping, of course, because everybody else was watching the marathon and I popped in and out of stores, took myself to lunch and then decided I wanted to see what this big running thing was about. I heard screaming and, and cheering and all this, you know, enthusiasm. So I took, it's right down here. I took a, um, I took a right onto Exeter street and saw the crowds and I took a right onto Boylston street and I heard a loud bang behind me and I turned around and I saw a ton of smoke right near the finish line. And I was like, further down from the finish line. And, uh, I knew that it was a terrorist attack. I just knew there was the ground shook beneath me. I screamed terrorist attack, which then gets you investigated by the FBI, but we're friends now. So it's fine. Um, <laughs> and I covered my ears, um, and my face. I'm glad I did. I lost a tiny bit of eyebrow. I grew back, um, and four inches of hair. Um, but I could have lost a lot. I could have lost, you know, my face and I covered my face and put my fingers in my ears and I was on the ground. Um, and the second blast hit me, uh, outside of the forum restaurant, um, right next to the mailbox. And, um, I had been, I now know through surveillance camera that I watched when I participated in the trial, uh, and the sentencing phase when I faced that sorry excuse of a human who did this to me, that I was walking next to him with the backpack and bumping shoulders with him and set down the backpack, looked around at all of us in the crowd and, hit his cell phone button and ran. Um, and, uh, I woke up, I was caught, woke up. I was conscious of the entire thing. I saw smoke. I smelled burning hair. We all know what that smells like because of curling irons and blow dryers. And, um, and I didn't feel pain right away, but I couldn't move my body. And I looked down and I saw this giant gash open in my upper right thigh, which if I had not been wearing heels would have busted my knee bone right open. I would have been above knee on my right. Um, and then I looked down at my left and I could only lift my neck up. I couldn't, I felt like I had this, like the weight of the world, like pressing against my chest. And it was just the impact of the blast that was not letting me move. And, um, and I looked down and my foot, the skin on the top of my foot was just flapping around. I'd lost my entire foot besides this top skin and my ankle and most of my calf. Um, and the lower part of my calf and, uh, I screamed and then I rolled over the panic and the, you know, you hear about these people who can, these moms who can lift a car up because they get, just get this burst of like, I have to do whatever I have to do to have this person survive or have myself survive. Um, and I rolled over onto my stomach and I like belly crawled, like the military crawl. And I remember vividly thinking, watching an after school special at a friend's house that you couldn't crawl this way because the glass would slice open mm, an artery. And so I crawled this way and I was slicing my arms open. I could see the blood um, pouring out of my arms. And um, I thought, oh, I'm going to try and save myself as much as I can before the next one hits because I definitely thought there would be another one. And everyone did. And, uh, then I got picked up by somebody and drugged into the forum. What I now know is I didn't know where I was, but at the forum restaurant and laid down my head was and like 
chests were propped up against the stairway that led up to the second floor. Um, and a couple tourniquets were applied and an off duty doctor was there. Um, and one of the barbacks was there holding my hand and then five firemen walked in with, they were super hot firemen walked in with, um, I don't know if they were hot just because I was like, I was being saved or they were hot because they were hot, but whatever, that's my story. And, um, and I, uh, they put me on one of those boards and put, they didn't, you know, obviously nobody knew exactly what had happened to any of us. So they put the brace around my neck and tied me down and took my purse for evidence. And, um, and, uh, I was on my way to Boston medical center, but as I was being carried out, I saw carnage and feet and legs and all sorts of horrific things. You know, one of the thoughts that's running through my head is like your dad goes to Vietnam and I understand he's an officer, uh, but you said he's, he would see things, but not maybe quite as gruesome. And here you are in yeah, Boston, he, Massachusetts, like at this event, yeah. that is this big celebration of sort of patriotism and you had to see some awful, awful shit uh, and feel and experience some awful, awful shit. It's, it's pretty, yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, he has constantly said and still says that uh, I fought in Vietnam in one of the most gruesome wars, and um, all wars are gruesome, but in one of the most gruesome wars, but I never saw anything like my daughter saw on a peaceful day in Boston. It's just not fair. It's just simply not fair. And it's not fair. Um, but, it, yeah, it's awful. And then I called my parents. Um and that was the hardest, most important, most wonderful, most difficult conversation I've had in my entire life. What was that call like? I didn't realize I had my cell phone, nor did I realize that cell phones existed. Because um, you're just all of this reality. You're trying to absorb all of this reality. The pain is kicked in. They're starting to give you morphine, and which I'd never had before because I didn't have an injury. I never broke a bone. I practice safe dancing. Um, and, uh, finally one of the nurses was like, maybe you haven't saved under your mom or dad. And I was like, right. That's right. I do have that. She's like, we need your passcode. And I was like, shit. And so it took us a solid 10 minutes to figure Then muscle memory. Finally, you know, we opened these things, you know, like muscle memory now, instead of thinking about what numbers I have. Um, so finally muscle memory gets in, we dial and I called my, I called my dad on his cell phone because that's what I do every day, every single day. And, um, we had a daughter date, dad and daughter date every week growing up without missing it unless we were traveling, um, every single week until I left Seattle. And I called dad and I said, where are you? And he said, we're driving, mom's driving, and I'm in the passenger seat so I can talk because you can't talk on a cell phone while driving in Seattle. And so, and my parents are real followers. So I said, you need to pull the car over. And he said, and I wasn't crying at this point. I knew that I could get them into an accident if I said something as horrific as what had just happened. I said, you need to pull the car over. And his response was, you can't pull the car over on a freeway in Seattle. You took your drive test here. You know that. Wow. And I was like, then I started losing it. And I was like, pull the car over like right now. And I don't swear to my parents at all ever. 
And I was like, my foot is gone. I'm dying. And I need to say goodbye to you. There's been a terrorist attack in Boston. And he said, Shawnee, he is my mom's name. And he yelled at her and he never yells. And he yelled at her and she immediately pulled the car over. And I could hear him saying, you know, what I had just told him. And he said, talk to me, what's going on? And I was like, my foot is gone. I saw death. There's been a terrorist attack. I don't know when the next one's going to hit. It could hit while we're on the phone. I don't know if they're going to attack the hospital. I need you to know I love you and you're my favorite dad. And thank you for my brothers and my life. And I'm sorry I moved. And I'm sorry for my teenage years. And um, and he said, I love you so much. And I'm going to cry if I keep going with every detail. But I said, I want to stay on the phone with you forever, but I need to talk to mom. And he handed the phone to my mom. He said a few things. I don't know what he said. It was mumbled, I think, on purpose. And mom came on the phone. And she said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And then I said, tell me a story because that's what storytellers do. And she told me about the time I came on the surf. And um, that's when I started to really lose it. And I said, handed the, I said goodbye. And I handed the phone to my, they were both crying. And they knew it was goodbye. And I knew it was goodbye. And I lied to myself um, and said that, um, that, handed the phone over to the nurse to give directions because my parents are right around the corner and they're on their way. Um, because I needed to hear myself say it. I couldn't grasp the reality that I would never see them again. I don't know where we go from there, but that's just, it was awful. I knew I was going to die and I didn't obviously, but, um, I didn't know how you would survive something like that. I was losing so much blood. People were slipping on it when they were walking next to my bed. Or gurney, I guess is what it's called. So you eventually get to the hospital. And I would imagine there's... I was at the hospital. And uh, that was at the hospital. And then um, I kept screaming that I was a ballroom dancer (laughs) at the top of my lungs. And that my foot was over on Boylston Street and somebody needed to go find it. (laughs) And... They said, Adrian, you really need to be quiet because you're going to disturb the other patients. This is, we're getting a lot of patients in and we're just separated by curtains at this point. And, um, we're separated by curtains at this point. And I, um, and I had, um, just kept screaming that I was a ballroom dancer. And they said, Adrian, you need to stop. You need to stop. And my train of thought was, if I keep screaming, they'll put me under and I'll be out of this pain. Mm. And I just said goodbye to my parents. And I can't imagine, like, I, I just need to have this go away. And, uh, so I kept screaming. I was a ballroom dancer and suddenly I was in the surgery room and they told me to count to 10. And that's the last thing I remember. I woke up and my parents were there. Wow. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. Well, okay. So take me to recovery. Take me to, uh, yeah the after um and i want to go back to we sort of bookmarked it before post-traumatic stress and uh, uh you know vietnam is like the epicenter of that but uh i i can imagine going through what you just yeah yeah absolutely i say pts instead of ptsd because i think the only disorder is the fact that society doesn't let us be emotionally honest uh, and that doctors should be treating it as a disorder, but not society. Mm. 
Um, thanks. Uh, and, um, so I absolutely have PTS and sorry, I don't know who this is. Um, and, uh, I, I just, I absolutely have PTS and I feel like it's, you know, it's not something that can be cured. It's a new normal. And if I hear a balloon pop or someone lights off fireworks or, any of that, I'm on the ground. Um, hence the reason why I have Fred Astaire, my service dog. Um, it's awful and it's a horrible new normal to live in. And I was just walking down the street yesterday and somebody's car backfired and I hit the sidewalk and a couple of people recognized me and stopped and sat down next to me. And they were like, it was a car. It's going to take you a second to realize that, but I'm going to sit here until you do. And Fred was Fred was with me and he just kept licking my face and it made it better. And, um, and that was it, you know? And, um, so it was, it's tough. It's a tough thing to live with. And it's, it makes me, I'm working on the anger part. It's working on the recovering perfectionist part, but I try and channel that anger into helping others. But it makes me angry that someone came in and changed my life not just in the losing leg part, but in the PTS part of affecting my entire family and my friends and, and all of that. It's just, it's just not fair and it's not, it's not right. Yeah. You know, I think we, we like to think of emotions as being like these long drawn out things, but the reality is everybody gets scared sometimes. Everybody gets Absolutely. angry sometimes. Yes. Um, like emotions have a shelf life and they expire. And um, I know for me, I have some anger stuff, not because of anything like what you went through. And one of the things that's helped me is like, I understand that when I feel anger, um, that that is a short-term feeling and another feeling and emotion will take its place. Um, and yeah. it's just been helpful for me to understand emotions and understand that. Yeah, it's good to look at it. Yeah. Oh, I took up boxing. Yeah, I'm sure. That probably helped you get some of that out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, definitely. But but so take me to post where uh, – so here's what I've seen. Run a marathon. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Still, still competing as a professional dancer. Um, yeah. When I call your, your phone, I get a voice message about you dancing to the ringtones. I mean – you have an aura. You, you've smiled this entire, um, pretty much this entire conversation. Um, walk me through what's happened since that day and what your mindset is and how you go through life day to day. And you already painted the picture sort of of the, the, the stress part of that this is still something that's with you and uh, this is still something you have to deal with on a daily basis. And that's reality. And uh, I love that you said it's unfair. It's like, no, this is unfair. Like, it's unfair, yeah. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to say like, oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. Like, I, I always love it, and that's being sarcastic. When people say, when people say, oh, look at your life now, isn't it so much better? And I'm like, I wasn't in the fetal position, homeless, when this happened. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I would, I was third in the world, and I had two legs, and I was living out my dream life in Boston, like. It what? No, like you don't. You, don't you didn't. Go, you don't have to go through shit to then do great things in this world. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm sorry you don't like your cubicle job, but you can change that, yeah. and it's not my fault. Yeah. So, 
Okay. I appreciate like you appreciating me and appreciating what I'm doing, but, the one, but my the, life wasn't awful before. The one fascinating thing, um, and I'm sure you've heard about this. Have you heard about post-traumatic growth? Um, yeah. So there is this, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I'm like, like I had someone recently say to me, they're like, man, I've lived like a privileged life and nothing bad's happened. I feel like, do I need to like hit rock bottom to like achieve greatness? And I was like, no, I'm like, what? Oh, that doesn't no decide what actions you want to take today and go toward that. Right. Like, so I, I, I think we romanticize it and I think we, we romanticize yeah. it and we forget the pain that you went through and the pain that you go through day to day. And I don't think we do a yeah. job as a society of trying to empathize. We can't sympathize. I can't sympathize. Sorry. Like I haven't lost a limb. I haven't gone through that amount of pain, right. um, but we do, we lack the empathy. Uh, a lot of times I think that is problematic, but post-traumatic growth for those that don't know there, there is a decent amount of research now that shows that when people do go through awful stuff that they're, there is an opportunity or a window for them to do like amazing things after uh, at a faster rate or a faster clip. So that part is is yeah. interesting, but we can't also ignore the post traumatic stress uh, and how that affects people day to day. Uh, but it, the push pull of that is is interesting as an outsider looking in. Uh, tell me about life now and sort of tell me about life since then. And you know, you can talk about the negatives, or you can talk about the positives. It doesn't really matter to me. But yeah. Sort of talking. Yeah, you know, I, I'm happy to hear you say that, and I do believe in post-traumatic growth, and um, and I, you know, it is hard, and it's not fair, and I think that we do, as a society, lack empathy. You know, you see, you see me as you know someone who's dancing again, and you know, doing the Annapurna circuit in Nepal, and running a marathon, and climbing a 19,000 foot volcano, and ice, and and doing all these things, but what they don't see is. When you get up every single night in the middle of the night to go use the restroom, you have to put on your leg and then you are awake and you can't just hop out of bed. And if a fire alarm goes off at a hotel, you panic because you can't run because you don't have your running blade and you can't run in a regular leg. And if, you know, all of those things happen and, um, when fireworks go off, you're terrified, um, so yeah, we, we do lack that empathy. We don't see behind the scenes. And I pride myself on giving speeches that are uplifting, but also brutally honest in, Hey, this is what is going on. Like it's, it's bad. And, um, I always compare it to if we took away contact lenses, corrective eye surgery and glasses to people, we'd be in really bad shape. Nobody would make it to work. And that's exactly what it is when somebody doesn't have a prosthetic leg on. Like, you can't do anything. Yeah, it's not, and it's not ignoring the fact that Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder don't have sight and were able to do genius, you know, music. Yeah. But I, I'm sure they have huge struggles. Yeah, it doesn't mean that their life is easy or it doesn't mean that their life yeah. doesn't have challenges. Uh, but right. I, I wanted to ask, you said something earlier that caught my attention. You said yoga is too easy. Um, do you like doing hard stuff? Is that, is that yeah. a, is that a, a, a theme in your life before yeah. and after? I don't think it's before uh, and after I like doing the hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I do. My, my it's a challenge. The feeling of overcoming that challenge and accomplishing it and doing the things people say you can't do. Um, like scuba diving, you know, you're not supposed to be at certain altitudes on, on volcanoes in the ice and you're not supposed to be in depths below, you know, 125 feet. It's the human body is not supposed to do that without a cage with sharks. 
but it's fun. And, um, and so it's, yeah, I like doing that before and after. And it's, I like to do hard things, but you know, after is, you know, like I said about, um, about getting, you know, on, you know, getting up in the middle of the night is impossibly hard. Uh, dating is hard cause you're missing a leg. Um, and finding somebody that has passion and empathy or sympathy, empathy, empathy really. Um, and you know, but accomplishing things and showing other amputees that they don't need the latest and greatest leg. I'm wearing one of the least expensive legs and that's what I dance in. That's what I won the competition in. That's what I, um, climbed Kayambe and that's what I did the Anna circuit in. Um, they can do all of that on those legs and to be able to show people that is important to me. There are two thoughts running through my head. One is, yeah, you like doing hard things that you're choosing to do. You don't necessarily like doing yeah. hard things that you didn't choose to do, which is getting up right. all night to have to put the leg on when you're going to the bathroom. You know, you don't like having to choose to react a certain way when fireworks go off because you didn't choose those things. Right. You like to choose. I don't to, have to figure out where to put my leg when I hop on a kayak in the Charles and end up on the other side, yeah. but I have to keep that leg dry. Like, I don't want to, I don't like that. No. It's not fair. It's, so, it sucks. I don't, what am I going to do? Hold it in the air and somebody else has to paddle? Like, what do you do? Well, I, so, like, it's, it's awful. So, so with that, and I heard you sort of hitting on this, is what do you think about positivity and, and hope and, like, those words? Because you made it very clear that you're like, look, when I'm giving a speech, I tell them the truth. Like, some of this is unfair. Some of it sucks. That, but you still can do things. How do you... What do you think of positivity? Because a lot of people say, oh, just be positive. Like, you'll be okay. Be positive. I'm curious to get your yeah. thoughts on positivity. Yeah. One of my least favorite uh, lines in the English language is, um, you'll be fine. Mm. I, I hate it when people say that. And not, not that you, you were saying it in a, in a like, theoretical way, because you know people say that to me. Um, but it's, it's awful because it's... Um, I just, I don't, I don't believe in the hit a button and everything's better. And to me, that's what that is. Uh, I, I have thoughts on positivity. I think it's good to stay positive, but you got to feel all the feels. We were talking about anger and depression and, and, you know, all of these things that you, the feelings that you feel there's the stages of grieving are after limb loss or the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, any of it are the same exact stages and, and we all, all feel them, the depression, the anger, the sadness, the loneliness, the um, acceptance, the helping others, you know, and they come in multiple places. You don't know when the next one's going to hit. And uh, if you felt one, it's certainly not the last time you're going to feel it. And uh, so I believe in positivity, but I believe in feeling all those feels because if you don't, if you bury them, you're going to be a miserable human being. Yeah, when we suppress those feelings and those emotions and we're not aware uh, and we just sort of gloss over them, first of all, we never get to feel the good ones, right? Like, what's a life about feeling the the emotion? Like, we wouldn't feel love, we wouldn't feel connection, we wouldn't feel... So you have to have both. I always say to people, if you didn't want to feel anything, you'd be a sociopath. And like, I don't think you want to be a sociopath. 
Um, so feeling emotion is important, but understanding that there's a timeline to it and it will, you know, something else will take its place. It might not be good, but a different emotion will come into play. And I think when we suppress it, that's when it bubbles up and bursts up and then becomes even more problematic. Um, but there's... There's other pieces to this, which you hit on, which is everybody's different. Everybody grieves. Their time frames of grief is different. And so appreciating and understanding that is is really, really valuable and really important. Um, When you, when, how do you like wake up in the morning every day? What, are are there any tools that you use to keep yourself focused on how you want to focus or how you want to live? You mentioned sort of getting to that um state when you're doing meditation or doing some yoga. Do you meditate? Do you do any tools to keep yourself grounded in the present? Yeah, I, I try and, I try and, you know, make some phone calls to friends and, and, you know, waking up to a puppy every day. I say puppy, he's a dog. Waking up to a puppy every day is not a bad way to start the day. So it's, it's, it's gotten easier since I, if I had Fred. Um, but I, I don't have like a set practice or a set, um, sort of mantra that I go to. I do stretching and during that time, it's me time. It's not checking computers. It's not checking calendar. It's not checking phone. It's me time, blasting music, being in my element. Uh, so I guess that's, that's really what I do each morning. Um, I try and put my leg on right away because if I think about it too much, then I'll lay in bed for longer than I should. Um, and, but you know, I have a dog to take out, so that's, that needs to happen. And, uh, so that's, that's gotten easier, but yeah, everybody's different. You know, some people will say, how do you do it? My mother, brother, sister, lover is going through X. Um, how do you solve for X? And I say, everybody's different. Just show up, take the temperature of the room and you'll be okay. That was going to be my last question because I watched a TED Talk where you talked about, um, you know, what do you do when people are grieving or what do you do? And it's interesting because you said you hate the idea of you'll be fine. Uh, the most common lie that people say is I'm okay. Uh, that's yeah. the most common lie that we share with others is, no, I'm, I'm actually okay. Um, so I'm curious since you've been through it, what tips would you give to people if someone is going through a tough time? Uh, what, what would you suggest to them? I'd suggest to them that they should take the temperature of the room that the person's in, um, whether you're meeting them for coffee, take their temperature around them, their own, their own world, their own, wherever it's a hospital room or wherever you are, um, take the temperature of the room. If they're throwing things, throw things at them. If they're don't try and fix the situation, you're not going to be a hero. You're not wearing a cape. Like you're just not like, I've heard it all. My leg never grew back. I said that in the Ted talk and it's true. Um, and you're not going to be a hero. So if you feel like you're uncomfortable, my advice to others would be, if you feel like you're uncomfortable and you are going to say the wrong thing, you're going to say the wrong thing. Just send flowers. That's it. That's it. Just don't show up, show up when you can don't have show up. And I, I feel like, you know, that whole, I'm fine thing. And you, you made the comment that we are, we're trained to say, and we, it's almost an impulse to say, I'm okay. I'm okay. When people ask you, how are you doing? I say, I have now more good days than bad days. And that's all I can hope for. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because I never, ever want to paint the picture that I'm okay. Because it's a new normal. And if I say I'm okay, it makes it sound like I hit this button and everything's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I got blown up by a terrorist, but my life's great. Like, no one would believe that, right? It's bullshit. 
It's total bullshit. <laughs> so let's end there, which is like, there's good days and bad days. Um, and first of all, I want to thank you for being so open and, and vulnerable and willing to share. I mean, no, I appreciate it. I'm sure every time you unpack this stuff, it's, it's not uh, fun, but uh, at least for me, one of the fun parts was getting to know you uh, in your story, because I mean, this is a it's chapter. Fun. It's fun. And it's, it's nice to be able to, um, it's nice to be able to have it be, you know, a, a really open conversation. And I believe in emotional honesty. And we, we talked about that, you know, and it's, it's a really wonderful, wonderful thing when you can be emotionally honest and, and be, um, able to talk about all the bad days and the good days. Yeah. There's so many chapters. I always say there. You know, and, and you even think about like bad days and good days. Like, there really aren't good days and bad days. There's moments in every. Day. So like, yeah. yeah. What's the phrase that? I don't. I don't have. There's no such thing as a perfect day, but there are. The overall, the day was perfect or or great, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> every day that we're alive, there are moments that are. Right. Like, most of the moments are pretty neutral. They're not even like good yeah. or bad. They're just being um but yeah like there's just moments and i agree with you i think we tend to say that person's positive or that person's happy or that person's sad or that person's angry it's like no they're not they are that for a couple moments and we like to generalize and just put everything into a nice pretty box and life just isn't a nice pretty box um yeah i want to give you a platform to just promote yourself talk about what you're doing now uh if people want to yeah and then i've got then i've got to run but um but the uh i'm doing a lot of, uh, a lot of public speaking. I'm, I volunteered for years on the board or not on the board. I volunteered for years with limbs for life, which is an organization that provides limbs for life, uh, for those that cannot afford it. And I felt like with all of the outreach that was given to Boston and all of us, uh, I needed to give back and I wanted to give back because that's how I was raised. And so I donated miles and, ran fundraisers and, um, ran the marathon, uh, in their honor for limbs for life. And then after that, I was asked to join the board and I humbly accepted. So I'm serving on the board for limbs for life and, um, providing limbs for life for those that can't afford it and, uh, traveling and speaking and, uh, was just asked to do a TED in New Zealand. That's breaking news. I just got that email, um, and a TED in China. Um, so I'm very excited about those. Um, and, uh, speaking and, and doing what I love uh, and hoping to change the mindset on recovery uh, along the way. Awesome. Well, I'll also include your Twitter handle uh, on this. So people you. can follow you on Twitter. I know I do, and I enjoy doing that. And Adrian, once again, thank you so much for the time. You've got a fascinating story. and I'm looking forward to the rest of the, the book, and maybe that book will be in your mom's store one day, and we'll, we'll all get to it. I hope so. I hope so. All right, Adrian. Thank have a good one. Thank, thank you. you. You too. Bye.